Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Americans were highly disturbed by the stories told by scores of young women, including many Olympic-caliber gymnasts, at the trial of sports doctor Larry Nasser. He is done and will spend the rest of his life in prison. But it gives us a chance to talk about how to spot, prevent, and deal with molestation. We have the right people to do that. Jerry Dunn is executive director of Children's Advocacy Center of Greater St. Louis. It's affiliated with UMSL and serves children impacted by traumatic events, including childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, and neglect. Linda McQuarrie is the center's director of forensic operations. I thank you both so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. An important subject, and uh, we were all just shocked and disgusted, obviously, by what we learned this week. But um, if I may start with uh, start with you, Jerry. Um, how could it be that a crime like this, over 20 years involving at least 156 young women, go undetected? Well, I often talk about how perpetrators of sexual abuse really have honed a craft in many ways, and they're very good at what they do. They know how to find vulnerable children. They know how to exploit them. And unfortunately, Dr. Nasser really was in a position where he had power, he had control, he had a context in which he could um, perpetrate these sexual acts within the context of, of this is a medical procedure. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, it was a perfect storm. The other really unfortunate thing along the way is that many of these young women actually did tell someone that they were mm-hmm. uncomfortable, that they told something, you know, something's wrong. And for a variety of reasons, the adults did not respond in a way that was really effective and could stop the abuse. In one sense, I suppose, if anything good comes out of this trial, and, and certainly the, the conviction was, was a good thing. It, it is an issue of public awareness, raising public awareness and maybe uh, empowering some young women to come forward and young men. It happens mm-hmm. obviously to young mm-hmm. men as well. That's exactly right. You know, our, our statistics, um, you know, it, it, the original statistics and the original studies really indicated that up to one in four women had some kind of unwanted sexual activity prior to their 18th birthday. We've seen a bit of a decrease in that, which is good. You know, now we're more in one in five, probably somewhere in that general vicinity. But there's still a number of young boys, you're right, who are subject and vulnerable to sexual assault. But to your point, I think we are so grateful, Linda and I are so grateful today to be able to talk with you about that because this has raised an awareness. This has brought forth an opportunity for us to have some conversations about what is it that adults, number one, can look for, and number two, what can they do if they do suspect something? Linda, do we have any numbers or any indication as to how much of this goes on in our general vicinity? Well, it's something that's hard to put a solid number on because lots of our kids don't disclose for many different reasons. Um, The one thing to remember is when I was growing up as a kid, we were told about the stranger danger. Watch Mm -hmm. out for that person that's trying to give you candy, that sort of thing. Um, Over the past year at the Child Advocacy Center where we work, one of the things that we do is interview children who are alleged victims of sexual abuse for law enforcement. Last year alone, we interviewed close to 700 children. That's a very large number of individuals. Um, And out of those 700 children, about 90% of them, if not closer to 95%, the individuals that had perpetrated or allegedly perpetrated the incidents was someone the child either liked, loved, or lived with. 
And if you can think about the impact of that, of them talking about what someone has done, they may not like the sexual abuse. They may want that to stop or they do want that to stop, but they may be fearful of the outcomes and who's going to believe them. We also know through statistics that most kids try to tell up to four times before someone listens because they may not say, hey, mom, this is exactly what happened to me. They may say, you know what, something happened that I'm not comfortable with. And lots of times us adults try to jump to explaining something to a kid, well, giving it rationalization versus just saying, kid, tell me more about that and really listening to that child. Why do you think uh, the, the adults in this case don't listen? My theory, I've been doing this <clears throat> child protection work for over 20 years. My theory on this is to believe that someone that you live with or someone in your family has sexually assaulted your child, that is a fear that no one wants to have in their life. That is so scary. So it might be easy to think that the child misunderstood or misspoke because there's no way that my father, husband, uncle, aunt, grandmother could have sexually molested my child. So I'm going to disbelieve my child. It's easier to disbelieve the child than it is to believe that an individual would do this to my child. But you say that uh, they, they uh, the kid, the child would make a comment uh, four times or make a revelation four times before it's believed. Mm-hmm. What happens at time number four or five? Luckily, there hopefully is an individual that hears them, that believes them, that says, I'm going to keep you safe, and then notifies the authority. They call law enforcement. They call the child abuse hotline number. They ask for the professionals involved to investigate these cases. It's important to investigate and to investigate them well because it's just as important to find someone who is hurting kids, but to also clarify if somebody didn't do something. Mm -hmm. Both are just as important. And what we know is when a kid makes a disclosure, we don't want to ask them over and over and over what they experienced because they, like us adults, are going to get tired of talking about something. And so we work really hard with the professionals in St. Louis City and St. Louis County to limit these conversations, to refer that child to the Child Advocacy Center because we have trained forensic interviewers, people that their only job every day, day in, day out, is to know how to interview a child to learn what that child may have experienced and to learn it in a way to where it's the child's voice, it's the Mm -hmm. child's information that's being shared so that when we have these cases when lots of times it's the child's statement versus the adult who most likely is going to deny that they've done it, how can we take this and move this forward? How can we make this case strong? By getting that solid statement from the child, it really, truly helps. Uh, Jerry, did you learn anything you didn't know before from the, uh, all, all the, the testimony and uh, news reports from the Nassar mm-hmm. trial? I think um, the scope of it was what was stunning to me. I mean, you know, I think many of the young victims, the young women, were really saying things like we, we've we heard before. I did try to tell someone, um, no one listened. Uh, this is, you know, you've, you've, you made me vulnerable. You, you know, you made me afraid to tell. So those are sorts of disclosure points and and barriers to disclosure that we were aware of. But what was really, quite frankly, 
stunning to our team um, was just the number of young women who came forward. And and often we think of child abuse and neglect as an iceberg. Um, we There are certain things that are made aware to the public through child protection, through disclosures to uh, adults, you know, and so that's what we can investigate. But underneath the water, there's an entire even more dangerous body of young men and women who may have gone through this and haven't reached out. Tell me exactly how the advocacy center works. I mean, I I suppose you need to have someone contact you who's Mm -hmm. got a suspicion or a a charge. So typically what we do, and and, and I I may throw this over to Linda soon, Mm -hmm. but um, what happens is our center serves St. Louis City and St. Louis County. And actually throughout Missouri, um, every child is covered by a child advocacy center. There are 16 child advocacy centers throughout the state. So Every child should have access to a forensic interview. But the way that um, forensic interviews are accessed is there's a a call that comes in either through law enforcement or through child protection through that child abuse hotline. That activates what we call the multidisciplinary team. Linda works really closely with our um, law enforcement units in the city and the county, as well as the individual and municipalities and the child um, protection units um, in the city and county, as well as family and criminal courts. But we learn of this. It comes through our center. It's uh, scheduled for a forensic interview, and typically we're trying to do those within 72 hours if, you know, um, getting getting the kids and families in quickly. Um, Subsequent to that, uh, again, Linda's team comes in and, and does the forensic interviews, which are a very specific type of interview. Uh, family members are uh, provided with some victim advocacy services. And then our team works with that multidisciplinary team along the way to make sure that there's no barriers to this investigation. We try to really um, provide as much information to each other as we possibly can so that they can do the investigation and find out how this child needs to be kept safe. So are you doing the investigating for the police then? I I would assume if they bring it to you that there's an investigation that's already started. That's correct. I'm going to let Linda handle that when she's much more in tune with that. Uh, Before before that, one quick question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 700 cases. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is is that just city, county, or is it statewide? That's just city, county. Wow, okay. And those are, majority are allegations of sexual abuse, but we also interview children who, where there's concerns of physical abuse Mm -hmm. or neglect. We also interview children who are witnesses to violent crimes. So if they may have witnessed a homicide, we'll interview those childs um, to learn what they may have witnessed. But when we might have a parent, and we do have parents call us and say, I'm really concerned my child just made the statement. We will then provide with them the hotline number for those that investigate child abuse cases. Children's Division is the name of it here in Missouri. Anyone can find their child abuse hotline by just going to Google and typing in child abuse hotline in the state's name, easily getting that number. And then once that call is made, then that is the beginning stages of that investigation. Uh, Children's Division investigators are assigned, and then they are contacting law enforcement. And many years ago, people were doing these investigations very separately, and it wasn't being very, we weren't successful in that. You know, the whole team process where everyone is working together and supporting each other, we have much more successful outcomes. So Children's Division contacts law enforcement, and then they call us and say, we need to schedule an interview for this child. We'll set up the date and time. The investigative team members come to our center. 
the family comes to the center, the team is watching the interview live. So the forensic interviewer and the child are in a room by themselves, interviewers asking questions, learning about that child. The detective, the children's division investigator, is sitting in what we call our observation room, watching that interview live. So we want to make sure we'll take a break, the interviewer takes a break to check in with the team, that we ask all of the questions that we need to ask. So in that one setting, Mm -hmm. we've learned everything that we need to learn from that child. And then while the child's being interviewed, then the caregiver is meeting with our advocate and learning where to go now. Mm -hmm. So many of our caregivers are just so distraught and so heartbroken. And so we want to start giving them information of, this is an event, this has happened, where can we move forward, how can we help you and your family heal? And so we set them up with services, specialized medical treatment, specialized mental health treatment. As the investigation is continuing, the detective and children's division works hand in hand, checking for witnesses, collecting evidence, all of those sorts of things. And then finally turning the entire case over to the prosecuting attorney. I've got to take a a break now, but just typically in in a word or two, how long do these investigations typically take? truly depends upon the case. Some can take days, some can take months. It just really depends upon the case. Let me take that break now, then we'll come back and continue our conversation. We're talking about a child molestation, and my guests in studio are Jerry Dunn, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Greater St. Louis, and also here is Linda McCrary, the Center's Director of Forensic Operations. Back to continue the conversation, if you have questions as a parent, perhaps uh, you'd like to have a certain specific information guided your way, we'll we'll do that too. 382-8255 is the number. Now give us a call at uh, that number or send us an email at talk at stlpublicradio.org or send a tweet at STL on air. Back with uh, Jerry and Linda in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation with Jerry Dunn and Linda McCrary about child molestation. Linda, let me come back to you very quickly. Um, How do you get these young people to talk? I'm sure they want to repress a lot of this. Well, one of the things as a forensic interviewer, one we joke about, if you've ever been on the airplane, you sit next to a stranger and they share their whole life story to you. You're like, why are you talking to me? We don't know each other. It's kind of one of those things where the kid comes in to meet with us. We're not going to see them the next day. We're not going to be that teacher that they're seeing every day or or other people in their life to where they don't have to have that shame and embarrassment of seeing us over and over again. But but more importantly, as interviewers, we are trained in regards to just asking the child what they experienced without having any emotional reaction, any, mm-hmm. like I don't cross my eyes or just shrug my shoulders. I, I don't give any body language to indicate that what they're telling me is concerning. Whereas if they're telling someone that knows and that loves them, that that grown-up may not be able to respond in such that neutral way. But we also want to make sure that we're learning it to where we're not leading or putting words in the kid's mouth. So we ask really open-ended questions. And kids are phenomenal. You can ask children as long as young as five or six of, tell me all about you. And they get excited to talk about their school and what they do. And a lot of times we'll lead into, do you know why you're here to see me today? Yes, tell me all about that. And so we slowly walk them through and we let them know that they're not going to tell me anything that's going to embarrass me or make me think any differently about them. I just want to learn what they may have experienced. Give them the time. They 
if they feel okay, if they feel safe and protected, they'll tell us. One of the things I've learned over the years is never, if you're seeking information, never ask the child a question they can answer yes or no. Because that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's all you get. Uh, Jerry, um, what should parents look for if they have any kind of suspicion or even if they don't? Are there certain signs that are likely to uh, tip them off? Absolutely. So, and mm. unfortunately, it's not a specific one, and it often does vary by age group. But often what we're looking at is significant changes in behavior. So the child's sleeping may change. The child's eating patterns may change. The other thing is often when a child has experienced sexual abuse or molestation or any type of trauma, they often are associating that traumatic event with a reminder or a, what we would call a trigger. And so there might be a triggering event um, or a, tri a triggering person or place that the child may all of a sudden have a very different reaction to. So it might be that um, not only did these young women not want to go back and visit Dr. Nasser with any sort of medical issue, but they might have even generalized that and not wanted to seek medical treatment for any reason. So if a caregiver or a parent is really noticing something like that, then I would pay attention to that. Um, sometimes it's a shift in how the child is is responding to the caregiver. They may they may become more clingy. They may become more close, um, not want to be around um, other folks or other places, those sorts of things. What's especially problematical, it would seem to me, are dealing with people with whom you instinctively trust, mm -hmm. a doctor, uh, a priest. What about Uncle Fred? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and that's exactly right. I mean, as Linda indicated, one of the, the mantras that we really go with is sexual molestation typically occurs with people that children like, love, or live with. And so for the child, from the child's perspective, even if they want the abuse to stop, they may or may not understand some of the consequences. And again, perpetrators sometimes are very good at manipulating those emotions in children well, you don't want, well, number one, it might be you don't want to get in trouble. So it may be that that's what's motivating the child to keep quiet. They're afraid that she's going to get in trouble if she says anything or people are going to think badly about you. On the other hand, sometimes perpetrators use the other avenue and says, well, you don't want me to get in trouble, do you? You don't want to break up our family. And so the, then the child is really faced with a very, very difficult decision. Do I protect myself or do I protect this perpetrator or my family? Uh, Linda, what would you say is the average age of the young people you work with? We interview kids from as young as three years old all the way up through the age of 18. Mm -hmm. It um, happens to every age. You know, the younger the kids are, the less verbal they are. Unfortunately, that makes them a better victim because they can't talk about it. Um, but we see all, all ages of children coming through our doors. And we adjust the way we ask the questions depending upon the age of that child and how we do that. But as Jerry stated that some kids may not know that they can tell, may not know that it'll be okay. And us grown-ups, what we need to do with those children that we have close and near and dear to us we teach them if there's a fire in the house, if there's a tornado, what do we do? Where do we go? We don't tell that just once and then never talk about it again. We talk about it on a regular basis. We do the same thing 
for private parts. It's not okay for someone else to touch your private parts. If it makes you uncomfortable, you tell right away, no matter who it is. That's a, that's a discussion parents have to have mm-hmm. uh, with, the, with their children. Mm-hmm. I have a tweet here from Ivan, and I guess this would go to you, Linda, uh, saying we should also discuss how not to treat survivors. Oh my gosh. The one thing that we tend, I see in the community, is to jump on this blaming. Why did they something? Why are we going to that route? Why don't we just say, how can I support you? What can I do in this moment to make it any better? Why do we disbelieve right off the bat? Why do we say it couldn't have happened? Because this person's a doctor, a priest, or whomever. Why do we go there? Mm-hmm. We have some callers. Let's uh, get the listeners into the conversation here. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Jeff calling from St. Louis. Jeff, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, yeah, during the Catholic Church crisis uh, several years ago, um, you know, with child molestation, I, I was speaking with friends who had grown up in Europe and uh, they expressed that it is a very American thing to put children in the hands of an adult without a chaperone. It's kind of our, our puritanical uh, leanings, and that the uh, Victorian attitude that boys will be boys and girls should be protected is, is very necessary. And uh, I, I just wanted uh, to comment on that. I think it's insanity for a parent to ever leave a child in control of an adult with human nature such as it is. I, I believe we tend to think that these events, I mean, your guest had, had stated statistics about a fifth of all, uh, you know, girls under the age of 18. I mean, those are huge numbers of people. Um, this is human nature we're talking about, and it isn't just a few people doing some bad things. You know, that's my comment. Jeff, thank you for it. Uh, Jerry, do you want to respond to that? Well, I think, you know, so I I appreciate the caution that we have to, as parents and caregivers, make sure that we are protecting our children because they are inherently vulnerable. The other thing that I think we have to remember is that we as adults, not that we want to make our children responsible for preventing their own abuse, that's not what I'm suggesting, but I think we do have to prepare them for those times when they are with other folks who may not have their best interest. How do we help keep them safe? And our children are enormously resilient, and as long as we as adults um, protect them as best we can and then listen to them in the event that something untoward does occur, then we're in a much better space. And we need to ask our organizations, how do you, how do you organization Mm -hmm. prevent child abuse from happening? Jeff is exactly right in regards to the one-to-one relationship. Recommendations, there's a darkness to light program that really is a prevention program that's designed for adults to identify how we can help keep kids safe. And one is you never do the one adult to one child. You have that second person in the room. The door is open. There's different safety cautions we put into place. We may be fearful to ask the camp counselor what their plan is, but Mm -hmm. by God, we should be asking what that plan is. I have another caller here that I'd like to bring in. Yvonne, uh, you're on the air, go ahead. Hi, thanks. I'm an adult survivor. Uh, I was abused by a priest when I was, you know, between 9 and 11 at Immaculata. Uh, 
I'm having this problem with the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and it's really an ongoing scandal for survivors where the process for handling survivors is a sham. Is a sham. Uh, and kind of what triggered me was your use of the, the, the guest use of the word misunderstood. In my case, the word was misinterpreted. You know, you're just misinterpreting what he's doing here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's, that's, that's absolutely true because it's exactly what happened. You know, what, you know, first and foremost, parents need to take this seriously because you, the consequences, you have no idea how difficult this is. Uh, I can't get, the archdiocese won't help me, so are there things that I can do to help myself? You know, I know something about cognitive behavioral therapy, and that kind of helps, but I've got complex PTSD, and, you know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Are there resources? Are there books? You know, and again, you know, parents do not, you know, you don't want your kids going through this. And your mm-hmm. your idea of never leaving them alone with a priest is exactly the right thing and mm-hmm. would have prevented mm-hmm. everything that I went through. Thank you very much for your call. It just proves once again that when the incident or the abuse is over, it's not over. It's an ongoing mm-hmm. issue. Absolutely. The, the implications and consequences for untreated sexual abuse are profound. Um, so I, I really do empathize with the caller and, and his struggles. One thing that I would ask him to consider as an adult is, uh, while as difficult it is, you know, we've got 30, 40 years of, of good, solid research now around what really works with survivors. Uh, one particular type of treatment that works very well is cognitive processing therapy. And our colleagues at the University of Missouri-St. Louis at the Center for Trauma Recovery, which is downstairs in our building on campus, they do provide excellent treatment for adults. On the children's side, our center is very fortunate, in addition to Linda and her amazing forensic team um, of forensic interviewers and advocates, I have 13 full-time therapists that are trained in a variety of different evidence-based practices for all sorts of types of trauma and all sorts of age groups. And those clinicians see children in about 8,000 sessions a year. Mm -hmm. And the only children they see are children who've experienced trauma. So if there is a parent out there now who has a child who has disclosed or has not received treatment for that, we really would encourage you to call our center. They can reach us at 516-6798. That's our main number. And we can direct you for um, to our intake process around seeking treatment. But the good, you know, as difficult as it is, is the, the very good news is that there are treatments that work. And um, even for those, as the caller suggested, for complex trauma, <clears throat> which is very trauma that is um, layered, multi-layered, and maybe have been sequential or chronic or um, or, or just different types of, of abuse that occurred at the same time. We'll put numbers and information on websites that uh, you have brought mm-hmm. along with you that, that will be helpful to people. One or two more calls as time will allow. I'd like to bring in Rick calling from St. Louis. Rick, uh, go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, yes, I, your uh, guests have already talked about this to some degree. I'd like to to see if they could expand on it. Um, and this has to do more with criminal justice. Uh, we we read stories periodically, see documentaries sometimes, in which uh, child victims uh, have been improperly interviewed either by police or by therapists who are 
not properly trained, and the evidence that then is brought against their their uh, perpetrators uh, falls apart in a court of law. And then on the other hand, there have been other kinds of stories in which uh, people have been falsely accused, and they've been mishandled by uh, the criminal justice system as well, and uh, uh, they may be improperly uh, uh, convicted, and then the real perpetrators are still at large. Have you folks had experience with that? Can you speak to those points, please? I would absolutely love to, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, unfortunately, in our history, there have been incidents of where kids have been interviewed over and over and over and over again and led to answer in different ways. And so people who did not commit the crime were actually convicted. Um, later, that was overturned. But some of those big cases back in the 70s and 80s really has shaped the forensic interview field. We have regular training. We do a lot of peer review. But one of the things that we really work on is how can we have the child tell us their experiences without us providing them any information that we don't know from that child. So we don't ask questions where the answer is involved. We don't ask questions based on information that someone else gave us. We want to learn from the voice of the child. But that also leads earlier, I was talking about, and again, the caller is exactly right, that kids were interviewed so many times that the kids just got tired of talking about it. And they said, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And they gave answers to grown-ups, but grown-ups asked questions in different ways. So it appeared that the information was different when actually it was all accurate. We just didn't do a good job as grown-ups by the investigation. Mm -hmm. So that Child Advocacy Center model, the CAC that we are, this grew out of those bad experiences. So it's still a process that we're still getting better and we're still working together. We're still doing a lot of training, but the thing is, we have kids coming to us that haven't been interviewed multiple times. We can interview them. That entire interview is recorded. So when we go to court, in many cases, that interview can be played for the jury. Um, I interviewed a child 12 years ago. The case, the individual was convicted. It got overturned on a technicality. We went back just a couple months ago. The conviction was upheld because the jury got to see that video of that girl 12 years before and could hear my questions, which were not leading, which were not suggestive, and they could hear in that 12-year-old's voice what she experienced. We have, Go ahead. We have quickly, gone, uh, we've gone so we're no longer at those days where children were on average being interviewed eight times. Mm by eight different people. Two points. We have to wrap this up, but two points uh, that callers wanted to make. We don't have time to take the calls. One is Mike O'Fallon says wrongful accusations are ruinous. That's something, obviously, that uh, has to be uh, taken into consideration. And Karen in St. Charles uh, wanted to talk about, as a victim, she felt guilt. And that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. why the kids don't talk, Absolutely. is they feel guilty for mm -hmm. all that's gone on. Absolutely. Ladies, thank you so much for being with us. Jerry Dunn, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Greater St. Louis. It's great to have you with us. And Linda McCrary, uh, the Center's Director for Forensic Oppositions. Thank you for being with us. Most, thank you. Most enlightening indeed. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.